Preface and Introduction to On the Parts of Animals by Aristotle Translated by William Ogle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards Preface The biological treatises of Aristotle are more often quoted than read, and it may be added more often misquoted than quoted correctly. None perhaps have fared worse than the De Partibus Animalium, which forms the central portion of that great trilogy, in which are set forth successively the phenomena presented by animals in life, the causes that have determined their structure, and the process of their generation and development the crabbed and obscure style in which this treatise is written its corrupt text and generally the difficulties of language have kept off the biologist while the simple aristotelian has been deterred by a subject matter as a rule alien to his tastes yet to both the treatise offers much of interest in it the Aristotelian will find some of the best examples of his master's method, while the biologist can scarcely be void of curiosity as to the first serious attempt to assign its function to each separate part of the animal body. It has been hoped, therefore, that this volume may be welcome to both, offering to the one a faithful and intelligible rendering of the text and to the other a body of notes which have been made much fuller than would have been necessary had they been meant for those only who had already some acquaintance with physiology. In neither part of this undertaking can I hope to have escaped many a blunder. It is indeed the consciousness of this that has caused me to keep the following sheets in my desk unpublished, though written many years ago and even now when i have been induced by friends to venture on publication i do so with extreme diffidence and misgiving of this however i feel assured that those persons who are most competent to detect my shortcomings will also be those most disposed to make full allowance for them for they will best know how difficult a task the preparation of a volume of this kind is in reality, easy and simple as it may seem to one who has never tried it. The Translator Nota bene. The references in the introductory essays and in the notes are to Becca's octavo edition of Aristotle, published by the Clarendon Press. At the bottom of each page of the translation there has also been added a reference to the corresponding place in the Berlin Quarto edition. End of Preface Introduction How came these adaptations about is a question coeval, we may be sure, with the first recognition of the adaptations themselves the answers to it fell of old as ever since into two main divisions 
one group of philosophers there was who fancied that they found an adequate cause for the phenomena in the necessary operations of the inherent properties of matter while another sought a solution in the intelligent action of a benevolent and foreseeing agent whom they called god or nature as the case might be look for instance said these latter at the backbone see how marvellously it has been constructed to suit the animal's requirements not made of one solid mass as is the femur or the humerus but subdivided into small pieces so as to allow of the animal making such motions and bendings as it may require while at the same time in spite of its subdivision so firmly bound together are its parts as to supply a rigid support to the frame or look again at the alimentary canal and at the blood vessels each part requires a supply of matter for its due nourishment what but foresight and intelligent purpose can have made these channels throughout the body to meet that necessity or see again your hand notice how admirably it is made what an exquisite instrument for the purposes of an intelligent animal and how useless for one without such mental capacity and then consider that it is man and man alone that has been endowed with it is it possible not to discern a foreseeing intention in this limitation of the organ to the creature that alone can use it with advantage in all this said the materialist you are mistaken the fetus in its mother's womb is straightened for space and forced to lie in a bent attitude its backbone gives way to the bendings and is necessarily broken up into a series of short pieces the animal then makes the best use of it it may as for the stomach the intestines and the blood vessels they are simply formed by the fluid in the animal substance driven hither and thither by the motions of that substance making channels for itself where it can most easily escape the hand again was not given to man because he was already intelligent but an animal among the millions of possibilities chanced to develop a hand and having it made use of it and by its means became intelligent but said the teleologist if this be so if all be due to chance combinations which the multiform play of the laws of matter brings about how comes it that we everywhere see adaptations combinations there should be without adaptations combinations even where the organs and the life are ill-suited for each other and are there not such said the materialist partly anticipating darwin as before he had partly anticipated herbert spencer are there not such about you on every side you have but to open your eyes and you will see them everywhere when the rain falls in seed time you say the gods send it that the crops may grow but you shut your eyes to the storms that come in harvest and wreck the farmer's hopes the rain 
whether it do good or harm, is alike the result of necessity. So also is it with things that live. All kinds of combinations are produced, but those alone survive that have the necessary conditions of survival, the rest perish. Even of such as are able to survive, is it true that all are suited for their life, in the sense that your hypothesis of an intelligent creative power would require? Do we not see on all sides living monstrosities and deformities, whose existence is incompatible with design, and only explicable if referred to blind necessity? These, if such there be, are no more, said the teleologist, much as Paley said after him, than the blunders of an artist. You will find errors in the composition of the best writer, faults in the work of the best sculptor, but the presence of these will not prevent you from believing that writer and sculptor worked with a preconceived intention and for a definite end. So began, and so was carried on, that venerable strife, which ever since has divided thinking men into two factions, and which still, though twenty centuries have passed away, is fought with unchanged weapons, and with increasing bitterness, and in which neither side has ever succeeded in reducing an opponent to submission, while each has never failed to claim complete victory. Between these two opposite views, Aristotle had now to decide. He had already in his Historia Animalium set forth the phenomena of animal life. He had now to consider to what cause or causes these phenomena were attributable. Were they due to mere necessity, or to the action of intelligent foresight, or at any rate of some principle that acted as intelligent foresight would do? To neither, he says, exclusively, but to both, though in very unequal degrees. The motions of the heavenly bodies are governed by necessity, and by necessity alone. But in the works of nature, that is, in the phenomena of terrestrial life, this necessity is a comparatively unimportant factor. Most is the outcome of design. Still some part, though but a small one, is the result of necessity. There is indeed one sense in which everything in the animal body may be said to be the result of necessity. When a man builds a house, he must, in order to realize his plan of necessity, have walls, roof, and the like. To have these, he must first have bricks, stones, mortar, and what not, and again to furnish these, clay, lime, and the other necessary materials must be previously forthcoming. So is it with the animal body. The design of nature cannot be carried out without the necessary antecedents. In this sense, then, all the parts of the body, and all the successive stages by which they are developed, one after the other, may be said to be the result of necessity, for all must necessarily be there if the plan of nature is to be realized. This hypothetical or conditional necessity 
is, however, clearly not what is meant by Democritus, and the materialists, when they say that all organisms are the result of necessity. They speak of absolute, not of hypothetical necessity. They mean, that is to say, that organisms are evolved as necessary consequences of the inherent properties of matter, not merely that the existence of the organism implies the pre-existence of the necessary conditions for its production. In short, that the antecedents determine the end, and not the end the antecedents. Is this, asks Aristotle, in any degree true? In some measure, he answers, it is. But that measure, as already said, is but a small one. Nature, in making plants and animals, can but use such material substances as exist. Now, these substances have many properties. Suppose, then, that nature has selected one or more of them for a given purpose, in virtue of their having this or that suitable property. She must take them not only with this desirable property, but with all their other characters, whatsoever these may be. And these other properties, which were not the cause of the selection, will afterwards assert themselves, and give rise to necessary consequences not included in her design. Thus, quote, We must not expect to find everything in the body made for a purpose. Its parts are mostly the result of final causes, but their material constitution entails as necessary consequences much that is incidental and undesigned. De Partibus Animalium, Book 4, 2, 8. These incidental and unforeseen results may be perfectly useless, nay, may even sometimes be baneful, but, on the other hand, they may be laid hold of by nature and incorporated in her scheme, though not originally included within it. The excreta, for instance, are the result of necessity, for the body wears away, and the products of its decay, together with the surplus and the indigestible parts of the food, must necessarily be eliminated. But these excreta are in many cases utilized and converted into means of defense. Or, to give another example, the formation of the skin is the necessary consequence of the exposure of the external surface to friction and evaporation, and the growth of hair upon the scalp is the necessary and incidental consequence of certain arrangements in the skull, which were intended by nature to answer another purpose. But this skin, when once formed, and this growth, though undesigned, are utilized by nature, and turned to account in furnishing a protection to the parts beneath against excess of heat or cold. In other words, then, nature does the best she can with the materials that are at hand, but the properties of those materials are beyond her control and such consequences as follow upon those properties are the results of necessity. 
A similar notion of the limitation of creative power runs through the whole of the Timaeus. The gods, in making man and animals, do the best they can, but they deal with a more or less intractable material, which often baffles their efforts. Let us always, and in all that we say, says Plato, hold that God made them as far as possible the fairest and best, out of things which were not fair and good. Galen also, some centuries later, took much the same position when criticizing the Mosaic cosmogony. Moses, he says, teaches us that the Creator is Lord over the necessary properties of matter, and that he can suspend or modify them at his will. He tells us that the Creator can make an animal of any matter he may please, a man from a stone, an ox from dust. This we deny. The laws of matter are antecedent to the Creator, and obligatory upon him. He can only work in harmony with them. He can choose the best which they allow, but not the best absolutely. Aristotle, then, admits that necessity is a factor in the world of life, and this not merely in the sense that living bodies consist throughout of ordinary matter, retaining its original properties unaltered, but also in the sense that some parts of living structures are the simple outcome of such properties, uncontrolled and undirected by design or final cause. What he denies is that the whole organism, or more than an inconsiderable part of it, can thus be explained. It is ridiculous, he says, to suppose that such phenomena as those of organic life are merely the result of chance, meaning by chance, as I understand him, no separate mysterious agency, but such uncoordinated combinations of necessary causes as are too tangled for man to unravel, and whose results are therefore not to be predicted. The very essence of chance is its uncertainty. Chance is the principle of the inconstant, but the phenomena in question present a high degree of constancy, and can be foretold with more or less precision. It is quite plain that besides the necessary forces of matter, there is something else at work which guides and coordinates these, so as to make them converge to a predetermined end. If a man cannot see this, it is absurd to argue with him. As well try and convince a man, born blind, who denies the existence of color. You see a house or a ship, and without hesitation you infer that such house or ship was made for the purposes to which ships and houses are subservient. Why? Because they are manifestly adapted to those purposes. Why, then, when you see a plant or an animal with equally manifest adaptations, do you hesitate to draw a similar inference? True, in one case you can see the agent at work while in the other the agency is invisible. But why should this make any difference? The agency in the latter case is invisible, because it is an internal force, 
a something acting inside the material. It is as though the visible shipwright were away, and his art were inherent in the timber itself. It is the case of a physician getting well, not that of a physician curing another person. Moreover, if the agency itself be out of sight, the model from which it works is visible enough, is as visible and palpable as the model of the ship or the plan of the house, and like them examinable before either is constructed. For the germ or seed will not develop after any chance pattern, but will grow in the likeness of its parent. Nature's model is that parent form. The seed of an olive will not produce any chance plant, but an olive like that from which it came. Man gives rise to man, and horse to horse. The doctrine of Empedocles ignores this fact. You say, or Empedocles said, that the multiform interaction of the countless combinations of matter gives rise to every conceivable form of being, but that those forms alone survive that have the necessary conditions of survival. Be it so. But the olive and the man are not the only beings that have these conditions. Why, then, do they always produce offspring like themselves? Why not any one of the other countless possible forms of life, clearly because there is something else than the chance combinations of necessary properties of matter guiding and directing these to a preconcerted end. This something else is what I call nature. I grant that, as nature is invisible, her existence is an hypothesis, but her works are visible, and the hypothesis is founded upon the contemplation of these. If you ask me whether this hidden force acts, as the builder or the shipwright, with conscious deliberation and conscious adaptation of means to ends, I do not know. Even art is not always deliberative. The highest art goes straight to its end without deliberation. So, too, the swallow builds its nest and the spider its web without deliberation and yet each in nicest adaptation to its wants. Why may not nature be a similar force implanted in matter, undeliberating, though guiding to a rational end? All I assert is that there is something at work in living bodies more than the common necessary properties of inanimate matter, something which, whether deliberative or not, acts as would an intelligent agent, selecting the best end and reaching it by the most appropriate means. Quote, Invariably, however, when there is plainly some final end to which emotion tends, should nothing stand in the way, we say that such final end is the aim or purpose of the motion. Close quote. De Partibus Animalium, Book 1 one thirty seven in other words in the works of nature as in those of art it is the desirability of the end which in some way or other determines the antecedent processes that lead to it but you say 
that what I call nature occasionally produces deformities and monstrosities. Does the artist, your builder, let us say, or your shipwright, never make a blunder? Do such blunders make you infer that the artist had no definite end in view? Monstrosities are nature's mistakes, or rather they are her failures, for they are due not to any imperfection or uncertainty in her action, which is invariable and faultless, but to the uncertainty of her materials. The substances in which she works are of indefinite composition, and her work cannot therefore possibly be uniform. The monstrosity is not nature's work, it is the victory of matter over nature. Thus it is that, though there is nothing of haphazard or of chance in nature herself, nature being invariably the source of order, yet her operations appear to be liable to exceptions, and her rules to be of general rather than of universal application. Quote, in all our speculations, therefore, concerning nature, what we have to consider is the general rule. For that is natural which holds good, either universally or generally. De partibilibus animalium, Book 3, 2, 16. There is an apparent difficulty here which requires a moment's consideration. Aristotle held the properties of the elementary forms of matter to be fixed and immutable. How, then, could he explain nature's occasional miscarriages by the indefinite character of the materials? Clearly, if the properties of the elementary bodies are fixed, when once an organism has been formed from them with a certain degree of perfection, any failure thereafter to attain at any rate to an equal degree must be attributable not to the necessary properties of matter, but to the faulty selection of material. For the properties of matter manifestly cannot be inconsistent with such perfection as has actually once been realized. Nature, therefore, must have been held by Aristotle either to have been an influence acting with limited intelligence, or to have been in some way or other hindered in her choice of materials, to have had, that is, her freedom narrowed by something more than the ultimate properties of elementary matter. The latter was undoubtedly Aristotle's view, and the limitation consisted in the materials with which nature had to deal not being the ultimate elements themselves with their immutable properties, but those compound substances which were in reality the simplest actually producible bodies in existence, the pure elements themselves never being actually presentable as such, in a condition that is of isolation. Had nature been able, as a modern chemist, to take so much of each or any of the elementary substances as she pleased, and to form from them compounds of fixed composition, and therefore of fixed properties, her operations would have had a fixed basis, and her invariable purposes have been carried out with invariable precision. 
but in making earthly organisms she had to deal with materials as they actually exist on earth and such were of indeterminate composition and therefore of indeterminate properties for it must be borne in mind that though aristotle distinguished chemical union from mere mechanical intermixture he had of course no notion either of combination in definite proportions or even of preferential affinities there was no such thing as definite composition or definite compound substances one piece of compound matter might more or less nearly resemble another but that it should be identical with it in composition and therefore in properties was in the infinity of possibilities not to be dreamed of every sample of material would differ more or less from every other and organisms made from such materials could never be precisely alike the heavenly bodies being formed of a single pure uncombined elementary substance were free from such variability and their phenomena were therefore absolutely fixed and eternal but earthly substances were all compound and therefore all indeterminate their compound character introduced an element of chance which often thwarted nature's efforts the faulty matter refusing to take the form she would impress upon it there is a question to which one would gladly find an answer but to which no sure answer is forthcoming did aristotle suppose that there stood anything in the background behind this mysterious organizing force which he personified as nature and if so what was it that the force which constrained the material of each individual organism to develop into the form most suited to the requirements was the same force which acting on a larger scale brought the fishes of the sea the fowls of the air the plants of the earth and in short all forms of life more or less completely into harmonious relations with each other and established an ascending scale of interdependence in which plants should minister to animals and animals to man may be fairly assumed but this is only to remove the question one stage back whence did this universal nature hetu holu fusis, derive its principle of harmony and excellence was it a something self-existing or something like the orderly discipline of an army which though apparently inherent is in reality dependent on a general in the background aristotle himself asks the question but gives no answer this much however seems clear the general if general there were could not be the extra-cosmic god whose existence is postulated in the metaphysics the unmoved that causes motion as an object of desire for his life was an undisturbed ecstasy of self-contemplation but whether there were other divine essences of less serene attributes answering to the inferior gods 
who in the Timaeus are interposed between the Demiurgus and mortal beings, of whose intelligent activity nature was but the expression, is a question which, whatever surmise we may form from a few stray and hazy passages, admits of no definite solution. In the biological treatises there is no reference whatsoever to the relation in which, if in any, nature stands to God. In these Aristotle limits himself to the teachings, or supposed teachings, of the senses. These revealed to him the phenomena of animal life, and he wrote of them. They showed him also, or seemed to show him, as plainly as his eyes showed him the existence of color, that these phenomena were not explicable by reference to the ordinary properties of inanimate matter, but implied the action of some other and coordinating force. They told him also something of the conditions and limitations under which this force acted, and with these also he deals but they told him nothing of the origin of this force, and whatever may have been his ideas as a metaphysician, as a biologist, he was silent. Having in the first book of this treatise laid down his general position, Aristotle proceeds in the rest of the work to deal with the application of his views to particulars. With this purpose he takes the various parts of the body, both tissues and organs, one after the other, into consideration, and professes to examine in each case how far the structure is the outcome of necessity, how far of apparent design. Such, I see, is his profession. His actual practice is merely to see if it be possible to find any use real or imaginary, for a given structure, and if such can be devised, at once to claim that structure without further argument for design. Seeing how fertile was his fancy in generating final causes, it will be readily understood how scanty a margin remained after this process as the share of necessity. One set of structures indeed there was, which seems to have caused him much difficulty. These were the organs, which we nowadays know as rudimentary parts. The inutility of these was too striking to escape notice, and seemed to exclude them from the pre-designed plan of nature that makes nothing without a purpose. Were they then the offspring of mere necessity? To this question Aristotle never gives a definite answer. He speaks in many places as though nature worked under some kind of restraint, the obligation of which is never clearly defined whether, that is, it is self-imposed or dictated from without. This restraint consists in the existence of certain definite types or patterns in more or less close accordance with which each organism must be made. Nature, for instance, can fashion this or that bird to fit the exact mode of life which is preordained for its species, 
but in so fashioning it she must not transgress certain limits. Each and all birds, through all their varieties, must present in form and composition the essential characters of the ideal bird which constitutes the avian type. If any part in this type be useless to the special animal created, nay, even if its presence be actually prejudicial, yet it must still be there in some shape or other, by way of token, semeu karin. The most that nature in such a case can do is to reduce its size, and, inasmuch as the ultimate composition of all the animals in a given class is precisely, or almost precisely alike, she can only do this by diverting the material which should have gone to the full formation of the useless or prejudicial part into some other organ, where it may be of use, or at any rate not equally injurious. So that, in fact, the organization of an individual species of animals is not always the best conceivable, but the best of which the essential type of the class to which that species belongs admits. Aristotle, as I have said, never expresses himself clearly on this matter. Did nature herself make these types, and adhere to them in her afterwork with the obstinacy of a prejudiced inventor? Or was there some external necessity coercing her, and driving her against her own better judgment to make her products in part futile? I take it that Aristotle was not himself clear as to his own views on the matter, that his opponents, or his own mind, had pointed out the impossibility of reconciling the existence of rudimentary organs with the strictly teleological position, and that he met the difficulty with a phrase, by way of token, leaving it really unexplained. The giant share which Aristotle allots to final causes, and the almost complete exclusion of necessity from consideration, make the main portion of his treatise to consist of little more than an attempt to assign to each part of the animal body a definite use, so that the work becomes rather one on the functions of parts than on the causes of their existence, and might almost have been styled as was Galen's later work, a treatise, Deusu Partium. Very possibly it was on this account that the designation by which Aristotle himself refers to the work, on the causes of the parts of animals, was in time superseded by the vaguer title, De Partibus, which it has ever since borne. We have now to inquire how it fared with Aristotle in his search after final causes, in his attempt, that is, to assign to each organ its proper function. It must be confessed that his success, as measured by what has been attained in modern times, was but small. In dealing, indeed, with the external parts, he was more happy. His account, for instance, of the adaptation of the visible parts of birds 
to the varied modes of life, in this class of animals, is admirable, and reads like a chapter from Cuvier, whose unstinted praise was lavished on it. But with the internal organs it was otherwise. The most that can be said is that he devised an ingenious system which included in its range pretty fairly all such facts as were known to him, but which in its conclusions was far wide of the truth as now ascertained. This was indeed inevitable. He was trying to solve the complex problems of biology while the ancillary sciences were yet unknown. Anatomy was still in its first infancy, physics embryonic, and chemistry hardly as yet conceived. What possibility was there that digestion or respiration should, under these conditions, find an adequate interpretation? This explanation of Aristotle's failure to assign to the several internal parts their several functions seems to me a sufficient and a true one. It is more usual, however, to account for it on other grounds, and to attribute it to his carelessness in the observation of individual facts, his hastiness in generalization, and the imperfection of his method. A few words on each of these alleged causes of defeat, and first as to his supposed inaccuracy of observation. I cannot but think that this has been, to say the least, enormously exaggerated. Were we indeed to suppose that Aristotle had committed all the extravagant blunders which critics have laid to his charge, the accusation would have to be admitted as just but a very large proportion, at any rate, of his supposed mistakes have no other ground than the careless mode in which his writings have been studied. They are not mistakes of Aristotle, but mistakes of his critics. To give a few examples, it is laid to his charge that he represented the arteries as void of blood and containing nothing but air, the aorta as springing from the right ventricle, the heart as beating in man and in no other animal, and as not liable to disease, the gallbladder as situated in some animals on or close to the tail, reptiles as having no blood, and so on, till the list might be swollen with almost every conceivable absurdity. In reality, not one of the errors here enumerated was made by him. Still, I am far from denying that there are strange misstatements of simple facts to be found in his works. That there is but a single bone in the neck of the lion and of the wolf. That there are more teeth in male than in female animals. But the mouth of the dolphin is placed, as in rays and sharks, on the under-surface of the body. These and the like are strange blunders, however they originated. This much, however, seems to me beyond question. These were not the personal observations of the same man who had noted the heart beating in the embryonic chick as a punctum saliens on the third day of incubation 
who had distinguished the allantoidian development of birds and reptiles from the non-allantoidian development of fishes, who had unraveled with fair accuracy the arrangement of the bronchial tubes and their relation to the pulmonary blood vessels, and who had not only given zoological and anatomical details concerning the cephalopods, which both Cuvier and Owen regard as truly astonishing, but had described nine species of them, with so much precision and happy a selection of their distinctive characters as to enable modern naturalists to identify pretty nearly all. Is it possible to believe that the same eye that had distinguished the cetacea from the fishes, that had detected their hidden mammae, discovered their lungs, and recognized the distinct character of their bones, should have been so blind as to fancy that the mouth of these animals was on the under surface of the body. Although a statement to this effect occurs twice over in the Greek text, yet it is to me as incredible that it should have been actually made by Aristotle as it would be that Professor Huxley should make a similarly palpable misstatement about an animal with which he was perfectly familiar. If it be asked how we can account for the presence of the erroneous statement in the text, we have not to go far for, at any rate, a very possible explanation. We have only to remember the strange vicissitudes to which the original manuscripts of Aristotle's treatises are said to have been subjected. Hidden underground, in the little town of Skepsis, to save them from the hands of the kings of Pergamus, who were then collecting books to form their famous library, and who, in so doing, apparently, paid but little regard to the rights of individual owners, they were left for the better part of two centuries to moulder in the damp, platarum et tinearum epulae. And, when they were at last again brought to light, fell into the hands of Apelicon of Teos, a man who, as Strabo says, was a lover of books, rather than a philosopher, and who felt no scruples in correcting what had become worm-eaten, and supplying what was defective or illegible. To what extent this corruption of the very fountainhead took place, we have now absolutely no means whatsoever of ascertaining. We are, however, I think justified in assuming with much confidence that such palpable absurdities as the one which has just been mentioned were due to this sacrilegious interference with the text, and should be put not to the account of Aristotle, but to that of the incompetent Apelicon, or his fellow transcribers and emendators. Similarly, would I explain another blunder already mentioned, namely the statement which occurs in the Historia Animalium, that in certain species of animals, namely men, goats, sheep, and swine, the teeth are more numerous in the males than in the females, a blunder which has been quoted with others by Mr. Lewis as an instance of Aristotle's carelessness in observation. That this statement is due to interpolation 
or correction of the original manuscript i feel the more assured because in other passages in the de partibus when the distinctions between males and females as regards their horns teeth and their offensive and defensive weapons generally are discussed no such erroneous statement is to be found it is said and said correctly that horns and tusks are often larger in the male than in the female and horns frequently wanting in the latter when present in the former but as to any difference in the number of the teeth there is not a single word we can readily conceive how an incompetent editor finding in the manuscript a half-legible passage relating to the teeth of male and female animals may have so filled up the gap as to convert a difference of size into a difference of number some of the more striking blunders in aristotle's treatises especially such as occur only in single instances may i think be fairly thus explained as to others we must remember that aristotle like every writer on a vast subject had to rely in great measure on the statements as to matters of facts made by others and this the more implicitly as the opportunities of verifying these statements were but rare neither menageries nor museums of anatomy having as yet come into existence there is indeed a tale that alexander supplied aristotle with animals from all the countries into which his expeditions led him but this story is so plainly fabulous that it might be passed over entirely without notice had it not received the sanction of the great cuvier on voit en effet says he par l'exactitude avec laquelle aristote décrit plusieurs animaux de l'inde et de la perse qu'il est sur les yeux les objets eux-mêmes five animals are mentioned as examples of this statement the elephant the camel the hippelephus the hippardium the buffalo as regards the first two of these the description given by aristotle is fairly complete and inasmuch as these animals being tamed would present no difficulty in transportation it is not impossible that aristotle may actually have seen them i can however find no evidence that he had done so there being nothing in the description which might not easily have been communicated by others while some remarks are made which seem to me much more compatible with the latter view than with the former as regards the other three animals it is astonishing how cuvier can speak of their being so accurately described as to imply actual examination they are only mentioned once altogether in a few clauses historia animalium book two one twenty twenty one twenty two just as they might be if aristotle were citing a passage of a letter from his pupil callisthenes who accompanied alexander and with whom cuvier himself supposes aristotle to have kept up a continuous correspondence the hippelophus may be identified with much probability though no actual certainty with the nilga and the wild oxen are undoubtedly buffaloes 
but the details given in this passage are quite insufficient to determine what animal is meant by the pardium or hippardium and to prove this it is enough to say that cuvier who must have been speaking at second hand and relying upon some utterly untrustworthy authority actually identifies it with the tigre chaussere or cheetah whereas it is said by aristotle to have a cloven hoof and horns in this resembling the hippelophus and has been supposed by some to correspond to the giraffe cuvier the historian of science is as i have often found an authority of very different value from cuvier the biologist whether ptolemy philadelphus not very many years after aristotle's death instituted a museum with a zoological garden attached to it more richly supplied with animals than any that has since existed as is stated may be doubtful but that no such collection was open to aristotle is i think indisputably shown by the utter absence of any allusion to it in his treatises thus aristotle in all probability had never had the opportunity of personally examining any of the larger carnivora either alive or dead the stories of hunters always prone to exaggeration were the only source of information as to the habits of these animals in life and if a chance skin hung up in a temple to commemorate an escape from a perilous encounter may perhaps have sometimes given a more direct notion of their external aspect yet the internal parts spirits of wine or other preservatives of organic structures not having as yet been discovered must have been entirely beyond the reach of investigation a hunter noticing the thick and solid neck of the lion and the wolf jumped to the conclusion that it contained but a single bone and did not hesitate to report as an actual anatomical observation what was in reality a mere supposition nor does it imply any great credulity on the part of aristotle that he should unhesitatingly have accepted such a report for it is not the actual falseness of a statement but its inconsistency with our previous experience which makes the ready acceptance of it to be an act of credulity a modern naturalist knows from an examination of a vast number of species that as a rule to which there is scarcely an exception the mammalian neck contains seven vertebrae and that in no known instance are there less than six possessing this knowledge he would show great credulity were he to accept without further question any account of a mammal with but one cervical bone but to aristotle who had not this previous knowledge there would seem nothing strange in such an account and as there was nothing in it to rouse his suspicions he would accept it without question in no instance do we find similar outrageous errors when aristotle as he often does states a fact to have been derived from his own observation so far indeed as i can judge he seems to have been anything rather than a careless and inaccurate observer it cannot of course be maintained 
that he was able to observe with the precision of a modern man of science. His substratum was insufficient for this. To observe, unless the phenomena be of the very simplest, it is not enough to keep the eyes open and to watch with honest intention for what may turn up. To be effectual, observation requires a stock of previous knowledge. He that has most of this will see best and most. Tell me, said even the long-experienced Faraday, when asked to be witness of an intended experiment, tell me what you expect me to see, that I may be able to see it. A second source of Aristotle's failure is found in his habit of hasty generalization, that he was constantly generalizing on a very scanty basis of facts cannot be denied. The stage to which biology had then attained made this a matter of necessity. The first stage in every new science is the simple accumulation of facts. The next, if it may be called next, seeing that it must go hand in hand with the first, is the rough sorting of these facts and the reduction of their chaos to some kind of order. This is effected by temporary generalizations, which, though they may be very far from the ultimate truth, yet serve for the time the necessary purpose of enabling the observer to manage his otherwise unwieldy material. All that can fairly be demanded at this period is that there shall be diligence in the collection of facts, and that the temporary generalizations shall not be obviously untrue. As regards Aristotle's diligence, there can be no doubt. Every chapter in his treatises bears testimony to it. What proportion, indeed, of the huge array of facts there stored was due to his own personal observations, to his dissections, vivisections, and occasional experimentations, what was borrowed from others, it is impossible to say with any exactness for the works of his predecessors and contemporaries have perished almost completely, and the laudable custom of citing the authority on which a statement is made had not yet been established. As yet there was no mistrust of other observers, because as yet it was not known how easy it is for an observer to be misled. Aristotle does indeed occasionally mention a name but it is the name of some one whose statement he rejects, and very rarely, if ever, the name of one whose statement he borrows. Nor must it be supposed that Aristotle's generalizations, though often false, were utterly puerile. Among them are not a few that, with little or no modification, have stood the test of time, and some even that, restated by moderns in ignorance of his writings, have been claimed by themselves or their admirers as deserving high credit. The law of organic equivalence, for instance, the general statement, that is, that nature must save in one part if she spends in another, be it true or false, has been claimed for Goethe and for Geoffroy Saint-Hilaire. Yet it had been stated in unmistakable terms over and over again in this treatise of Aristotle's. The advantage of physiological division of labor, 
was first set forth, says Milne Edwards, by myself in 1827. Yet Aristotle had said repeatedly that it is preferable, when possible, to have a separate organ for a separate office, and that nature, never, if she can help it, makes one organ answer two purposes, as a cheap artist makes spit and candlestick in one. That the position of an organism in the kingdom to which it belongs is not to be settled by a single differentia, but by a consideration of its aggregate characters, that the complexity of life varies with the complexity of the organization, that the structural differences of the alimentary organs are correlated with differences of the animal's alimentation, that no animal is endowed with more than one adequate means of defense against its enemies, that there is an inverse relation between the development of horns and of teeth, that no dipterous insect has a sting, that there is an inverse relation between growth and generation, that the embryo is evolved by a succession of gradual changes from a homogeneous mass into a complex organism, and that the development of an organism is a progress from a general to a special form. These and numerous others are instances of generalizations made by Aristotle, and which have lasted with but slight modifications of his terms to the present day. There remains yet the faulty method. Mr. Lewis, in an interesting chapter, traces Aristotle's failure to the absence of verification from his method of inquiry. Again, however, I would say that verification does not find its proper sphere in the early condition of a nascent science, when the generalizations are merely provisional, and though false, yet necessary precursors of more accurate ones. How far, indeed, Aristotle himself recognized the true character of his biological work may be a matter of doubt. Few men care to look on the results of their hard toil as provisional and ephemeral. I can, however, find no passage in which he betrays any confidence in the finality or permanence of his conclusions. In the absence of such it seems but simple justice to credit him with at least the same degree of modesty as he evinced when speaking of his much more successful labors in another branch of science. I found, he says, no basis prepared, no models to copy. Mine is the first step, and therefore a small one, though worked out with much thought and hard labor. It must be looked at as a first step, and judged with indulgence. You, my readers or hearers of my lectures, if you think I have done as much as can fairly be required for an initiatory start, compared with other more advanced departments of theory, will acknowledge what I have achieved, and pardon what I have left for others to accomplish. De Sophisticis Elenchis 34. As rendered by Grote 2. 133. So far, 
the comparison has been between Aristotle and his successors in modern times. For it is only in contrast with their achievements that we can speak of his results as failures. Such a comparison might serve in estimating their claims, but not in estimating his. For it is the gap that separates a man from his predecessors, not that which lies between him and his successors, that gives the true measure of his position. Let anyone, then, compare Aristotle's physiology with that of the Timaeus, which Plato, as Galen tells us, borrowed from Hippocrates, and which we may therefore fairly take to represent the general views of the most prominent authorities immediately antecedent to Aristotle. In passing, then, from the Timaeus to Aristotle's treatises, one is conscious of passing into an entirely new order of things. In the former we have airy and fanciful constructions in which imagination alone supplies the foundation, and in which facts, if introduced at all, are introduced merely as ornamental additions, in no wise essential to the fabric. In the latter the positions have been inverted. What was the ornament has become the foundation, what was foundation has been converted into ornament. It may indeed be that sometimes these new foundations are but slight and weak in comparison with the structure they are made to support, but they are at any rate substantial and of the right material. Jamais, says Cuvier, speaking of his great predecessor, jamais il ne pose un règle a priori, and even if we allow, as perhaps we must, that exceptional cases may be found in which this too general statement hardly holds good, and in which Aristotle seems to lapse into the faulty methods of earlier writers, yet it must at the same time be conceded that these occasions are at most but rare, and that when they do occur it is because, as with other men, so with Aristotle, practice falls somewhat short of principle. Neither should we forget that in most minds there exists an aesthetic craving after completeness, or, when this is not to be had, after its semblance, a craving which leads men almost irresistibly to fill up the gaps in their systems with such makeshifts as come to hand, and this weakness may be forgiven them, if only they are ready to pull down their stop-gaps and cart them to the rubbish-heap so soon as better materials can be obtained. That Aristotle, who manifestly felt this desire most acutely, and who, in those early days of science, had but scanty means of giving it legitimate satisfaction, should occasionally have had recourse to this palliative, can scarcely be a matter of surprise but how ready he was to abandon it for better things the following passage, amongst others, shows. Such, he says, after speaking of the reproduction of bees, such is the conclusion to which we are led a priori, and facts apparently support it. I say apparently, for the actual facts are not yet sufficiently made out. Should future research ever discover them, we must surrender ourselves to their guidance, rather than to that of theory, 
and theories must be abandoned unless their teachings tally with the indisputable results of observation. De Generatione Animalium, Book 3, 10.25. It was by thus altering the basis of inquiry and substituting facts for theories, more than by actual observations, that Aristotle made a huge step in advance of his biological predecessors. And if, some two thousand years later, Bacon gained for himself an immortal name by insisting still more peremptorily upon the value of induction, it must be remembered that the instrument in his own hands was at any rate not more successful than in those of Aristotle. By the skillful use of scientific method to discover new truths is a noble achievement, but far nobler is it to discover the method itself by which alone such achievements are made possible, and to have done this is Aristotle's glory. That the method as left by him was not perfect, that there were flaws which the fuller experience of after ages detected and gradually remedied, may be allowed. Seldom, if ever, does a great invention come fully armed from the brain of its first author. Weak points there invariably are, which trial alone will reveal. To detect and strengthen these is to confer a benefit on mankind, but is a service which can never be put on a par with that rendered by the original conception. Inventions, to quote from a treatise already once cited, are either the final shapings of what has been partly elaborated by others, or they are original discoveries and but roughly shaped. The latter are the most important. The first step, according to the proverb, is the grand thing and the most difficult. For first beginnings are as small and inconspicuous as they are potent. When they are once accomplished, the remainder is easily added or developed. End of the Introduction